Ink and Quill illuminates on literature, culture and beyond. That's cool, isn't it? Listen to the sound of some incredible readings. The Great Wall story is the story of the relationship. The imagery in China is so strong. It's a book about the human story. Ink and Quill. Something provoking. We have to think like a queen. Something thoughtful. History is fantasy, really. Something fun. See some naughty people trying to steal panda cubs. All here on Ink and Quill. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. In 1955, Mao Zedong, the then Chinese president, made his famous proclamation that women hold up half of the sky. His statement marked a new era for recognizing contributions women are making to their country, and to a large extent encouraged gender equality. Yet in reality, men still rule the world, evidenced by group photos taken during various international conferences, such as those like the G20 summit, where most of the world leaders are predominantly male. But in a remote, mist-shrouded valley of China's Yunnan province, the Mosuo tribe, one of the world's last surviving matriarchal societies, women take the center stage as the leaders of the community. Among the Mosuos, I found over the years, the women are strong-headed, they are confident, and they go about not needing、uh, to be next to a man or to gain stature because of a man next to them or something. They are on their own, and they are proudly so. Chu Wai Hong, a former Singaporean corporate lawyer, has lived with this community for six years and got fascinated. By their distinct culture. I mean, it was a very slow, enjoyable journey to understand this different world. You don't immediately know about it, you know. And then I started reading. Then I started living there, and I started interacting with people. Then I slowly understood, step by step, what their society is about. In today's Ink and Quill, therefore, our reporter Shi Yu talks with Chu on her latest book, *The Kingdom of Women: Life, Love, and Death in China's Hidden Mountain*. Wai Hong, thank you so much to be on the show. So your book is titled *The Kingdom of Women*. I have to confess, when I heard this phrase for the very first time, immediately I thought about the female-only kingdom depicted in *Journey to the West*. You know the classic Chinese novel. So, in your opinion, does this kingdom of women you wrote about strike any similarity with the fictional one? No, in fact, people in the Mosul community believe that their history goes back to a long time ago, and that it could be a possibility that in the CUT, in the Journey to the West,、mm-hmm. that they had probably come across this. Community, in fact, it is a community not only of women, but where women are the main players. That it was a matriarchy and so on, and that they existed a long time ago. You know,、mm-hmm. it may not be a fictional place, but it could jolly well be where、uh, the Mosul people live in Yunnan Province.、Mm-hmm. So it's no accident that the book follows the Chinese name. 
that is usually given to the Moso tribe uh, living by Lugule, which is either Nui'er Guo, Kingdom of Daughters, or Nui'ren Guo, which is Kingdom of Women. And also I thought it would catch people's eye, you know, in the title of the book, because it's like, oh, what is this, a Kingdom of Women? Is it an Amazon thing they're talking about or something? You know, it's yeah. a catchy uh, name. But they, they, you know, the tourist brochures do describe uh, the Moso tribe by Lugule as a Nyerguo. So it's, it's no accident that I chose the name. It sounds fascinating. So where is this kingdom of women and what's the scale of it? There's a beautiful lake in Yunnan. It's bordered with Sichuan called Lugu Lake. Well, it's not too big a lake, but it's quite a nice-looking lake nestled in the high mountains of this place. Until about 20 or so years ago, this place was out of reach. Uh, there, there was no contact, really, uh, with the outside world because there are no roads leading to this place. And the Moso community, they live around the lake in little villages and little hamlets. Uh, some of them no more than a few hundred people, one, two hundred people. Just little settlements around the lake and a bit further inland from the lake. So basically, I think uh, geographically, Lugu Lake is sort of the place where the Moso tribe lives around. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a few other small pockets of other tribes, but mainly it is Mosul country. And in the old days, you have to like ride a horse and get there, you know, uh, through many, many days. Uh, Joseph Rock, who was a, a big explorer and cartologist and, and writer for uh, National Geographic, he went through this area, Luku Lake, on horseback for instance, and that was in the 1930s. I think the first roads that were built to link Lugu Lake to the next big place, which is Lijiang, mm-hmm. uh, was probably built like 20-something years ago, I think. And now there's a big highway. I used to take seven and a half hours to drive from Lijiang to Lugu Lake. Wow. With the new highway, it only takes three and a half to four hours now. So it's not so secluded and hidden anymore, but it really was secluded and hidden for the longest time, I think. So when you find out this community, it was rather isolated from the rest of the world. I'm really curious because as far as I know, you are quite successful lawyer and you work with top law firms in Singapore and California. So mm-hmm. how did you discover this quite remote society hidden in southern China? <laughs> Um, I was a very busy lawyer for decades mm-hmm. until one day I thought I haven't really lived and I need to live life more excitingly. So I quit a legal practice. And the first thing I did after quitting was to discover and understand China, basically. You know, I'm Chinese, uh, although uh, I was born outside of China in Singapore, but, you know, it is my ancestry and I wanted to understand it better than I had. So I I visited China and traveled across the length and breadth of China and studied Mandarin so I can speak to people. Mm -hmm. And it was in the course of my traveling within China that I stumbled across this idea of a mountain goddess festival, 
by Luke Lake. I just read about it in a tourist a booklet. And I thought, ooh, a mountain goddess festival. Well, I'll go since I have time, right? And that was my first time uh, to Luke Lake, to the festival, where they actually worship this female deity. There's a big uh, mountain as you approach the lake, and that's the goddess mountain. And every year in the summer, the Moso people go up and pray to her and ask her to look after them for the next year, give them a good harvest. And then they they have a nice time picnicking after worshipping the mountain goddess. I think that's the sweetest festival, you know. I still go every year. Mm, because for a lot of people, when they find about this festival, they probably just go there, have a yes. lovely one-off experience, then they are gone for good. But you, in your book, you mentioned about you came back there for many, many times, and you even built a house there. So yes. what's so unique about this community that constantly brings you back? I think both at a personal level and at the level of uh, a connection with this woman-centric society, you know, that drew me back. At the personal level, I, I sort of met two young kids, you know, teenagers, and they decided on on first meeting me to call me Godmother, Ganma in Chinese, you know, just because it just happened. And since I take life quite seriously, when somebody calls me Godmother, I thought I have to be, like, kind of responsible for these kids, right? <laughs> So I came back the following Chinese New Year, the Spring Festival, because I thought I should come and see my godchildren, right? So Mm -hmm. the godchildren drew me back, and their family sort of accepted me as the godmother of their children. And so I felt very welcomed, and people within the family that asked me if I wanted uh, to have a house built there, you know, that is the personal part that sort of drew me back. And once I had the house built, I just go back because it's so nice to live in a very slow-paced agricultural setting, you know. But also at the society level, I just as I visited more and more often, I just found that I was very comfortable in this setting. You know how, as a woman, I felt really like welcomed and and kind of respected in this community of people, whether it's by their women or by their men or by the children, right? Mm. I think it's because it's a woman-centric society. You see, among the most of I found over the years, the women are strong-headed, they are confident, and they go about not needing uh, to be next to a man or to gain stature because of a man next to them or something. They are on their own and they are proudly so. And even though they may have a long-term partner or something, right, they don't go around as if they need a man to prop them up. So I think when I appear, I'm single, I don't have anybody next to me <laughs> to give me support or whatever. It's n- not strange at all because they are like that. And I think they saw a, a kindred spirit in me, you know, um, and accept me for this. As a woman, you can, you know, make decisions and do all sorts of interesting things, I think. And I like to liken it to how a man would feel in a, in a patriarchal society, you know. Like, I think a man is much more comfortable in a patriarchal setting mm-hmm. than women are. Well, I think that's how I feel 
in Mosul land uh, by Lugulay, just going about making friends, being accepted by the people and so on. I, it's because I'm a woman in a woman's place, you know. So I spend lots of time there. And it's just living there, really, you know, passing my days slowly and just making friends and, and getting involved in some community projects. But living there has its own ups and downs, right? I remember in your book, you mentioned about people over there have this very strange concept of communal poverty. And it's like, and it's like you know, <laughs> everyone lives <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about positive one and then the not so positive <laughs> one, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> about my experiences living there. Um, you see, in my book, I talk about uh, how you know one must have an open mind to really accept different things and how people deal with different things in different ways in different communities, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I discovered rather painfully is the concept of a communal community property. In a way, I don't understand coming from a very capitalistic, you know, individualistic uh, society, right? And that has to do with uh, the car that I have use of while I'm there. Because, you know, it's all mountainous roads. If you don't have a car, you you can't get about. Mm. And uh, I bought this car. But every time I leave... I will hand the keys to somebody to say, well, now and then you've got to warm my car up. I suppose you can use it, but please don't use it for business purposes or whatever, right? And please don't let anybody else drive it. And then I come back months later and I find out the person I left the keys to would let other people use the car, would drive tourists around in the car and so on and so on. And it was like the keys are communal. You know, whoever needs a car, they pass the keys to. In the very same way, they would treat their own, say, a motorbike. I have seen this again and again, right? If a neighbor wants to go to town and doesn't have transport, he'll come to like, my godchildren's father's home and say, where are your keys to your motorbike? He'll be given the keys and he'll take the neighbor's motorbike to town and back. Again and again, it's like, if you have something, and if your relative or neighbor needs, it's free for them to use it in a very casual way, you know, so that property and personal possession, right, doesn't have that strict rule that we we are more familiar with. Yeah. So my car had for a long time been used as a communal uh, vehicle, <laughs> much to my consternation, you know, I'm still not used to it. So in the end, I, I just thought, oh, forget it. I'll sell it to them and then it's all solved. You know, it's not mine, it's theirs and they can do whatever they like with it because I, I just cannot share my property with people, you know. So that's interesting, isn't it? Like, I mean, you read about communal property, but to come face to face with it is a challenge. Yeah, exactly. And, but despite all those challenges, by the end of the book, I kind of feel like you become the fairy godmother of this entire village. <laughs> well, it's kind of, it's, it was a slow build-up. Uh, actually, I was godmother to a girl and a boy. They are brother and sister, you know. And then I got adopted into this large family of theirs. Whenever I go there, I would spend a lot of time with uh, different siblings of this uh, family, you know. 
And then slowly I, I got involved in the community library. I would attend every Chinese New Year celebration in a village, every month celebration for babies. They have this coming-of-age ceremony that every teenager goes through at the age of 13. They become an adult. I would always attend it, wherever it is. And I always attend the Mountain Goddess Festival. And I would attend funerals of you know people who have passed on and so on. So I'm around in community events, right? Mm-hmm. And after a while, I mean, people sort of got introduced to me. And in the village where my godchildren lived, they would say, oh, this is Ganma, because I don't have a name anymore. This is my name, Ganma, right? Mm. A godmother. And then in my third year, basically I ended up sponsoring financially the Mountain Goddess Festival Mm -hmm. because they had no money and it was dying and I saw that this festival was dying and I didn't want to let it go because it's such a beautiful festival and it it didn't seem like it cost very much so I said okay let me give you some money you can hold it and since then I've been sponsoring this festival much to their gratitude I think because to them it is very important and at least they have a festival to look forward to now, you know. So I think that really cemented <laughs> my reputation as the godmother of the community, I think. And I do help in other ways, like, you know, supporting some students to schools and stuff like that. Chu Wai Hong, author of the book The Kingdom of Women, Life, Love and Death in China's Hidden Mountain, shares with Shi Yu about her experience living among the Morsu community, China's last matriarchal society. But Chu stresses that the Morsu tribe is not the direct opposite of our traditional patriarchal narrative. Want to know why? Let's find out after this short break. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. You know, there's an old Chinese saying goes like this, 男主外,女主内. So basically it means men are breadwinners, whereas women are homemakers. So since the Moses community is a matriarchal society, so does that mean that the Mosul tribe is the direct opposite of this traditional patriarchal narrative. Well, you know, the question of whether everything is directly opposite is an interesting one because some things are opposite, but some things are not. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned like the division of labor, right? That yeah. the men go out to win the bread and the women look after the things in the house, right? Yeah. And, and therefore, the women's position is a bit lower than those who go out to make money, right? The men. Yeah. What is interesting in the Mosua division of labor and how they view the different genders having their respective roles is this. I mean, the fact that it is women who run the farm, run the home, Mm -hmm. and they organize the planting and harvesting and the herding of animals to feed the whole family. It sounds like it's the same in the outside world, right? Yeah. And in fact, their men are the ones who have to deal with the village and the outside relations of the home. Sounds a bit like that. But the grandmother and her daughters are the ones who run the farm, who harvest and feed the whole family. 
So the division of labor doesn't seem that different. But it is the place within the home that they have that is the opposite. Because in being in charge of the farm, being in charge at home means that they are the boss, the women, mm-hmm. not the men. Whereas in the outside world to them, is the other way. The men go out, so they are the boss. And, you know, they bring in the food. But here, the women are in, in control of the means of production of the farm, right? Mm-hmm. So they are acknowledged as the boss, their mother and her daughters, right? And the men accept that. And the men are just a bit below the women. Okay? And all the kids will grow up understanding this hierarchy of things. So it's an acknowledgement that that is more important than the men going to deal with uh, relations outside the home. And it's very interesting. I mean, there the many things that come with the acknowledgement that the woman is the head of the party. You know, when you just said, kind of reminds me of one sentence from your book. And it goes like this. A morsel girl has no need to fight for empowerment because she's empowered from birth. So that's the means that women, most women, they enjoyed certain privilege, you know, just like men usually do in the patriotic society. That's the means yes. that, yes. So that means like, do women talk down to men? Do men, you know, face discriminations? I think we have to like start from the beginning, right? In how patriarchy forms families and how matriarchy forms families, right? Yeah. Uh, just to put it in context, in patriarchal China, it is the man who is the boss, and family is is his, and they take his surname, and all family is traced to the male bloodline, you know, father's bloodline. Mm-hmm. And that's why all your relatives are, your close relatives are the male side, the male bloodline side. In direct contrast, in Mosul society, it is matrilineal which means it's only those who are related to the female bloodline. They make up the family. Mm-hmm. You know, in direct contrast to patriarchal families, among the Mosos, I want to talk about the three generations of a Mosul family, right? Sure. Your grandmother. Okay, it's her bloodline we're talking about. She may have a few brothers with her at home and a few sisters, but it's, if she's head of the household, and then she would have her own children, girls and boys. Of course, they have her bloodline. Mm-hmm. So they form part of her immediate family. And then at the third generation, this is the interesting part. Since only her daughters can pass on the female bloodline, she only counts the children that her daughters give birth to as belonging to this family. Mm-hmm. Her sons, if they even have children... It has to be with another woman. Yeah. And that other woman wouldn't share the same bloodline as grandma's daughters or grandma. So the son's kids, if you like, the son's kids don't belong to this family because they are born of another female bloodline. So in grandma's family, the three generations I talked about, everybody is related to her bloodline which means the son's children don't count. The lovers of her daughters don't count too because they don't have grandma's bloodline, right? They're outside of this family. So they are not even part of the family. The men lovers of her daughters don't move in 
the daughters don't move out to join them. They just live as a matrilineal family without the need to bring in the male partners of the daughters to live within this family. So that's why some sociologists talk about it's a society without husbands and a society without fathers because the male, we call them asias, lovers, right? The male asias of Muslim women don't form part of the family and they don't come in and they don't have to be acknowledged as the fathers of the children that these women might have. So if we understand that, then the dynamics are different, you know, between uh, women and men. Mm-hmm. Because in patriarchal society, since the man is the boss, then he, the women are beneath the men, right? In Mosul society, since the women are the boss, the men are one shade below the women. You know, in the home, it's mm-hmm. quite clear that you see the men sort of pay quite a lot of respect to the women, knowing that they are a bit above. And in Mosul language, sometimes when they want to talk down to people, they will use the male terms, you know, to as as like a insult or a derogatory comment. They will use male terms. So yes, there's a bit of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Although from my observation, I think the unequal status of women and men is not so great as I sense it in a patriarchal setting. So. In other words, I think it's it's a more equal society with a less drastic uh, demarcation of power, you know, between the two. Mm. Yet, women are at the center of it. And when I talk about a girl never has to fight in the Muslim society for recognition, for a voice, for control, because um, she is already there. You know, I, I you know somebody asked me, are, are they feminists? Actually. If we say one is a feminist because one has to fight for a rightful place in society, then I say most of women are not feminists because they don't have to fight. They are already there. Mm. In most of society, when a girl is born, it's a celebration because the family lives on because she continues the female bloodline. Yeah. When a boy is born, okay, they say, all right, it's fine, but... It's not such a big celebration because he doesn't continue the bloodline. These are the differences that are so fascinating, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. It sounds like most women are much more powerful, confident, and self-assured than men. Yes, the women, because of this, are very confident. They are self-assured and they move about and and they take charge. You know, like you can see at a party, the women take charge. You know, they they're out there in front and they're not. Shy or not so confident, you know. You can see that the men, uh, they are not that unconfident. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean, they. I think that they are kind of confident in their own way, knowing that uh, they have to give way to the women in the house, but they are not like oppressed or submissive, you know. Yeah, and I think this speaks to what I was talking about earlier, which is that it's quite an equal. A not so big uh, difference in the hierarchy because the women don't oppress the men and and make them feel belittled, you know.、Mm. And so I see that difference. But the bigger difference for me is to see how confident and 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 self-assured the Mosul women are really, in a way that is very uplifting for me as a woman, you know, to see. 
As you mentioned earlier, there's no husband or wife in Mosu language because they practice something called working marriage or zhouhun in Chinese. I mean, lots of people from the outside world criticize this multi-partner code of love. So, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think the outside world wants to paint it as like, oh, they have such free, easy sex, which are one-night stands and all that, right? Yeah. Actually, the Mosul themselves would tell you that's not right. I mean, it's not just one-night stands or something, you know. I think because of the family structure that doesn't have, uh, doesn't admit people who don't belong to the same female bloodline as family, so they don't need to have marriage and to have two strangers, you know, a man and woman to set up a new family line, right? Like we are familiar with. That society then doesn't need this, doesn't need marriage, doesn't need a pair of man and woman to set up a, a new family line. So you reorganize your love life in a different way because they don't become part of a permanent pairing of a couple. Hmm. And there's no requirement to be a permanent fixture, you know. So I suppose then love life doesn't need to be permanent and, and to be only one for all your life because there's no such societal requirement. Mm. So it just turns out that most of the time in the course of one's life, you know, they may like somebody like, okay, for a couple of years, you know, and then things just don't work out. They can go on to the next partner and so on. So they, they have the flexibility to have a few. And most people would have had a few partners in their lives. Mm. And especially if they are younger, they probably have uh, more different partners. But as they age too, it, they sort of morph into this uh, staying with like one regular partner. Not staying with, but just sticking with one regular partner probably into old age. So it, it's not as if they are rampantly being, you know, having one night stands every night. I mean, when human beings get together as a couple, they do in the same way, you know, I mean, whether they love each other or or they are jealous that you like somebody else and all of that is, is the same. Mm. It's just that society doesn't impose on them to be legally fixed with one person. So it's, it's a flexible system. I mean, I know a lot of Mosul people who are like in their 60s and they practice this walking marriage that they in fact are just with one partner. I mean, it's just that they are not married in the legal sense or in the societal sense. They each live in their own matrilinear household, but they have been kind of seeing each other and, and they see each other as a couple for life. Mm. In the same way that, say, a married couple might see themselves, but it's just that their family arrangements are different. You know what I mean? It's just different, and it's different requirements of a different society. It's not just rampant free sex, one night stands, you know. I think the tourism literature makes it out like that. But the Mosos will tell you in their heart of hearts, that they are also like human beings and, and they love and sometimes they change their love. Well, it seems that they are doing pretty well without marriage. Yeah, except that I think they are starting to get married though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> it's, young people. you're talking about 
the most community opened up to the outside world about yes. you know twenty years ago, and now there's yeah. a booming tourism and people taken to yes. money. And you know when I read the book, I always have this constant negative feeling in my chest. I just feel like maybe the tradition is dying out. So, in your opinion, how long will their tradition hold out? Oh, it's changing so fast. Even in the few years that I've been there, right? And I've been there, I suppose, from 2008. So we're talking about 10 years by now, right? I see the change before my very eyes. I mean, the last few years particularly, last three, four years, right? And each time I go back, I see the change, right? The young people are dropping a lot of the old Mosul customs and practices and adopting the outside world practice like you know, the Chinese practice or, or the Western practice or whatever, what, what they learn in school or they learn from tourists visiting them or they watch TV or read books, right? I think they think it's quite cool to adopt the ways of the outside world. As we all are always thinking that the grass is greener on the other side, they just think it's cool. And I have so many young Muslim friends who are getting married when their parents or grandparents would have never thought of having to get married, you know? Mm. And a lot of them also are marrying outside their tribe so that, you know, say they marry a Chinese and the Chinese would, would insist on the marriage anyway. You know, you know what I mean? And so in that intermarriage relationship, they are diluting their own culture as well. They are changing very, very fast. They're marrying each other and they set up uh, their own family because now they're running a little barbecue restaurant you know by for the tourists and they have their own money and the children now belong to them and they don't live in their matrilineal families anymore so you know i think fundamentally they're changing they don't realize they're changing so fast that it will cause their old ways uh, to slowly be not as important and over time die off. In fact, some of my Muslim friends themselves think, you know, in 20, 30 years' time, there may not be a Muslim culture left. And and I'm so glad I, I sort of caught it in a time where I could see the old and the change. And I think this record of, of their lives mm. is important, you know, just in case they do disappear, at least we've recorded it. Yeah, and it's all recorded in this book, The Kingdom of Women, Life, Love and Death in China's Hidden Mountain. So what do you want your readers to take away when they read your book? And what sort of lesson can we get from this women-eccentric society? The most important lesson that the Mosos can give us is that another kind of society that is not patriarchal is possible. I think, you know, a lot of historians or sociologists or whatever, they think that all human organization will evolve in a straight line from matriarchy to patriarchy, right? That is inevitable that all societies become patriarchal. Well, I think what the Mosos are telling us is that you don't only necessarily have one type of human society. You can have another. You can have a woman-centric matriarchal society and it's possible and they are living proof of that possibility right yeah i I like to say you know the world also doesn't come to an end when you give power to the women (laughs) instead of the men you know it doesn't come to it doesn't come crashing down because they have managed 
to survive for so long, like thousands of years. The other lesson I think they give us is that not only is matriarchy possible, I think the way that this matriarchal society has organized its life is a fairer and a less oppressive one in terms of relations between the two genders. Mm. And it is a lesson that perhaps patriarchy can learn from that you don't have to be so oppressive against the other gender. And 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 I think uh, uh, on another level, it's so nice to see women uh, brimming with confidence and self-assurance because they are not oppressed. Yeah. And that is so nice to see. So why Hong, what's next for you? Are you still going to spouse the Mountain Goddess Festival or do something about preserving local culture in the future? I will continue this commitment to mm-hmm. keep it alive. I mean financially. And I've got a friend now who, who is willing to take over the reins to donate money. Well, we'll see how it goes because I really don't want to see it die off. Yeah. You know? We probably have to wait for the next 10 or 20 years to see what would happen next. That's right. And whether the young are willing to maintain it, you know what I mean? Because right now it's the older folk who are keeping it alive. Yeah. You know, whether the next generations will want to do the same thing and commit the same energy and time to keeping it alive, we don't know. That was Shi Yu talking to Chu Wai Hong on what we can learn from the Mosua community. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always more interesting happenings in the literary world, and we will keep you posted. To learn more about us, you can follow our Facebook account, China Plus, or simply download our podcast by searching the keyword Inconquil on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Yang Yong. See you next time. Sai anyo